Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast. Produced in association with the Marketeers Network. This week on the PR Moment Podcast, I'm interviewing Vanessa Pine, co-founder of Atlas Partners. What I love about Vanessa's career is that it's real. She says she doesn't have any regrets, but there are a few career decisions where I suspect, in hindsight, she may have played a different card. Vanessa is currently a director at Atlas Partners, who employ 10 people and have a fee income of £600,000. Atlas was formed in 2015. Vanessa, welcome to the Pillman Podcast. Thanks, Ben. Nice to be here. Before I start, I just wanted to make sure that all our listeners are aware that the PR Moment Awards are now open for entries. New for 2019, all shortlisted work will get feedback on your entry relative to your competitors within the category. So check out the PR Moment Awards site where you can have a look at all the details. The first entry deadline is in December. Right, plug over. Vanessa, you're a self-defined political animal and you worked for the Lib Dem campaign in 2010 when I agree with Nick became a bit of a stock phrase. That must be quite fun. <laughs> yes, it definitely was. I mean, I suppose it was the crossover of my two worlds in right. that I was managing media, uh, national broadcast crews and print journalists for the political party that I'd always supported as a volunteer. Um, it, as Clegmania took over and the Lib Dems went up in the polls after the first ever TV debates, the crowds at our events got bigger and bigger and bigger and it was daunting uh, for a small team of four people on the ground who were organising it. But I also learned a huge amount and it was so much fun. It must have been quite, I mean, Click Mania seems a long time ago yes, now, right? I'm dating myself. Let's just say they're, they're missing you. But um, <laughs> the it, it's, it, was, it must have been an interesting time for that, the, the, the Lib Dem press office, because, you, you know, you, you went from, uh, well, you obviously weren't a huge team and all of a sudden, it exploded, didn't it? I guess fueled by the TV debates. Yeah, that was the main thing. I think it was the first time in the UK that we've ever had television debates as part of the general election. Yeah. And that uh, meant that a whole swathe of people who weren't really, you know, weren't political animals, weren't tuning into uh, politics every week, suddenly realised there was a third option. Uh, and during the um, first debate, both Gordon Brown and David Cameron used yeah. the expression, I agree with Nick, which we then rapidly put together on some posters, which were handed out at um, events. Numerous times. I mean, I can't, I mean, did, were you counting? I bet you must have been. They, yeah, they, they, we, I was watching it in a travel lodge in Leicester. You weren't there. I can't, well, <laughs> no, no, I wasn't important enough I thought to be, you'd be in the green uh, at the TV studio. No, right. no. Um, so I, my role was that I was part of what they call the advanced teams, which is where basically you're driving around the country uh, in a in a people carrier. There's four of you. You turn up at the seat. You look at the place where the event's meant to take place. You work out where's he going to stand, who's he going to talk to, okay. um, uh, how's it all going to work, and you liaise with the broadcast crews who are also there in advance checking it out. So and when, then, when you say advance, you mean a couple of hours in advance? <laughs> no, right? a day or, or so in okay, advance. Right. And then uh, Nick would arrive and he would do his 
half hour tour and talking to ordinary people, real people. And then he would do some media, which was the bit that I was in charge of. But the crowds kept getting larger and larger and larger. And, you know, he travels with um, uh, some close protection people and they were fantastically helpful. But there was one point where we were worried that the BMP were about to storm the event that we were managing. So it's, um, you know, and at that point you think, um, I really need to pull my swan impersonation up a, a level because you're just absolutely kind of bricking it and not and really quite sure. Vulnerable, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What, I mean what are you going to Crowd of four hundred people yeah. and and a team of four around um, uh, the leader of the Lib Dems. Yeah, it's you have to remain calm and just carry on and hope that things will be all right. And mostly they were. <laughs> Because it's, well, I mean, listen, you'll know this better than I, but they were 40% in the polls? Or for, something for, like for, that. For 48 point, hours for a brief, something. For a fleeting moment, there, so, was a, there was a dream. So it was going to be Prime Minister Clegg for a little while. <laughs> but, um, I think we tried to keep our feet firmly on the ground. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that, that it's, it's rare, and I'm, I'm just going on memory here, but the, the fluctuations in polls for that election were, were more than I, I suspect we've ever seen, isn't it? You know, the... Lib Dems went up a lot, Labour went down a bit, and the Tories sort of vaguely stayed the same. I yeah, I mean, you'd have to consult a polling expert like Professor Curtis, I suppose. But um, but what just mean to, to? It's always important not to take the polls too seriously. I think. Um, well, it is. It is now ten years later, yeah. but at the time, they, we, we sort of thought they were pretty accurate. I well, suppose. and as mm. anyone who's ever conducted a poll for PR purposes, you you know that your answers are always a little. Uh, right. uh, and the, and that you you're trying to. You know what you ask people um, does or doesn't give you a particular result, and I think uh, there's lots of examples of people not telling pollsters exactly what they really intend to do, or yeah. you're asking them too theoretical a question. So it's yeah, but even so, that that, that relative movement was. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I'm sure they were right quite not, volatile. But, it, but to be working on the inside of that at the time must have must have been quite exciting. Um, now, as a result of that campaign, of course, the Dems joined the, the coalition government. Um, and those Lib Dems working in, in public affairs, PR, like you could self-work at the time. Um, I think I remember chatting to David Brain at Edelman at the time. The, the, the Lib Dems became more valuable than ever. Yes, you know I mean? well, I think people um, felt that they needed one for the yeah. first time. You know, <laughs> like my, my party affiliation had been largely irrelevant to my career up until that point. And for the first time, it, I was then, you know, I had some kind of market value because I... I did know the ins and outs of the party and I had worked with most of the senior people uh, who were now in government. And uh, and at that point, I chose to get on a plane and move to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> which I love. I mean, we've all done stuff like that, which in hindsight, oh my goodness, what was I doing? But I, I you know, the, you've said you don't, you, you did that for, for reasons that yeah. frankly you don't regret. No, absolutely not. I mean, I, I think... It, it's something I had always thought of doing, and it and the you know it felt like a, the right moment to do it. And I had been planning it for about six months, and the election was at the end of my sort of planning period. Yeah. So um, I think that it's you know sometimes you just have to take the lateral step rather than than the obvious step. And in you know life in Australia it taught me something completely different. So I got I got masses of um, skills and experience and and. Uh, learn all sorts of things about myself apart from anything else mm. which you know I'm sure I would have learned amazing things had I been in uh, you know been in coalition government for longer but it's you know I got there in the end yeah well I, <laughs> I went like lots of people I went traveling after what well, after university I think it wasn't I haven't been back to Australia since and I'm amazed by that I mean I loved it absolutely I mean the, yeah. one thing that 
I, I'm probably more surprised about this. You, you, you came back. Why, why, <laughs> yes. why did you come back? <laughs> well, I suppose, um, you know, I'd gone later into my career. I had some um, uh, experience under my belt. And right. I went because I wanted to live and work abroad. And I'm not good enough at languages to work somewhere where you, yeah. where they don't speak English. So um, I loved Australia. And I was, I, I was taken by surprise by how much it hurt to leave actually yeah, but... Um, but my uh, boyfriend uh, wanted to leave, move to London he was Australian he'd never lived here he wanted to do the Australian in London thing and I'd come so it was a combination of things you know I'd come to the end of a contract he wanted to move and about three years in it was sort of the time where I thought well if I don't go back now people may well have forgotten who I am right um, so is, is PR in Australia much different than, than, than PR and commas in the UK um, I mean, I think a good story is a good story wherever you are. And I think the core skills of a PR person in terms of being organised, delivering on time, managing your clients' expectations, those are all universal. But the media market is very different. Right. And um, there are fewer publications and it's um, people know each other really well and I mean, lots jo- of them to media just know each other and, and politicians the same right. so you know they all went to school together and then they went to university together oh, right. and so the the um the okay. marketplace is is much smaller but so i think the thing i found the thing i found hardest was the um like pop culture references so i rapidly fa- would google <laughs> people's names so natalie grizlowski who was an ambassador for a campaign that we were working on was a weather girl and you know but she came up in a meeting and there was lots of sort of nodding and smiling from me like i have no idea who you're talking about <laughs> but nothing that a rapid google couldn't uh, answer afterwards so but it's quite hard then to, to from the everyone goes to school together you know that sort of old net that, that network yeah it's quite hard to break into yeah i mean i think they because it is a smaller market they also appreciated um a london-based experience and i yeah. think that like, a lot of my um friends in australia were also english pr people yeah. and they had the same um sort of experience that their skills were highly prized yeah. because London's seen as more competitive. Um, how true that is, I'm not sure, but it certainly benefits of, you when you are there. Yeah, a lot of Brits go over there. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not quite sure how many come back and how many don't. I would totally recommend it to anyone who's considering it. How long were you there for? Three years. Okay. All, all in Sydney? I can't remember. Yeah, so I lived in Sydney, and the first job I had was an agency job, and the second job I had was in-house. But my agency job, I worked on a campaign called Australian Year of the Farmer, which was the best <laughs> job for a tourist because I got to travel all around Australia and um, talk to the wine growers in South agency Australia. Year of the Farmer. Yeah, Australian Year of the Farmer. It was a celebration of agricultural produce. It was amazing. Back in my Haymarket days, there was always a sort of there was a, I don't know it was an annual press release, but there was there was a press release that came through from the I think the the, the British Potato Foundation of, yeah. of who they had awarded their <laughs> no doubt um, large PR contract to. But yeah, it, so, so for the launch, you know how they say never work with children and animals. For yeah. the launch of Australian Year of the Farmer, we used the site of the first ever farm in Australia, which was the Botanic Gardens in Sydney. We built a map of Australia using the (laughs) produce from around the country. And we had real animals. We had uh, sheep, we had llamas, and we had a cow. Did you have wine? Um, We did have quite a lot of wine, yes. (laughs) It was very important to check the quality of the wine. I'm sure. 
Yeah. Um, now, whilst you were in Australia, you, you were made redundant. Is that right? Yes, um, I was. Now, being redundant at any time is a, a pretty tough thing to do. And yeah. that's where it goes back to back to what I was saying on the intro, that you know, you've had a real career. You've had a few ups and downs. You've bounced back from them, frankly. Um, but when you're made redundant in Australia, presumably on a work permit. Yes. Uh, I think it was, was it PPR? Um, yeah. Uh, P- uh, at the time. Presumably, you're going into interview feeling a bit of pressure. Yeah, you do, I mean, you the, there was a real risk of me actually being deported, um, uh, which... It sort of sounds funny in hindsight, yeah, but was it at the time? Probably uh, not. I mean, I think being being made redundant is an interesting thing. This is the second time that it actually happened to me because I was made redundant in the first financial crisis in London from right. my agency job, although that time I took voluntary redundancy. I think in some ways the, in, the uncertainty around being made redundant is worse than the actual act itself. Okay. So it, in, it sometimes sort of pushes you over a cliff edge and then you think, well, now I can do anything. And that's it's as, it's as exciting as it is scary. Um, but, but, but at the time it was just you, right? You didn't have, you didn't have a mortgage, you didn't have... No, and that, and that was the yeah. that was one of the reasons why I chose to go to Australia in the first place because I I knew I didn't have dependents, I knew right. I didn't have um, uh, sort of things to. So that me. helps, I suppose. Yeah, doesn't it? yeah, you're um, you're you're the you're not worrying about other people and and being affected by your decision, but they give you a sort of grace period to find a new job, and it How takes that? about that, that well, they don't tell you officially. The, the Australian government doesn't it, because it's a sort of grace period, and at any okay. time they can write you a letter and say you've got twenty eight days to leave the country, which is effectively your deportation letter. So you know, most recruiters, I think, and most people in the PR industry who've who found themselves unemployed from time to time, you it takes a couple of months to get the right job, right. which is roughly the same amount of time that the Australian government gives you grace period to find right. a new job but if you're... you're on a sponsorship visa. So okay. it came right down to the wire for me, and I had a we had a last weekend booked in Palm Beach, which is where they film Home and Away, um, to say goodbye to my uh, then boyfriend and say. Right. Well, you, I'm. I've got to go back to the UK. You're staying in Australia. It's not really going to work. Um, being th- separated oh that far apart. Goodness. And then the week that we were due to go, um, I got offered two jobs because uh, you know that's the way it happens Always when you're doing way. lots of interviews. Um, one for another agency and one for the job in house at Coca Cola, which is what I ended up doing, which was brilliant and exciting. But it gave me a reprieve from a kind of visa deportation and gave our relationship. You know, chance yeah, to prove right. itself too. Right. <laughs> I, I gonna have to, are you still together? We are still okay, together. Okay, so it yeah. has a, a, a happy ending. Yeah, it does. <laughs> okay. um, no, you would. So you and then what was your what was that job? That was a that was after. So I, I, the last job in Australia I did was I, I managed brand PR in house at Coca Cola. That's right. Okay. Which is a job that I don't think in the UK, I would have been a serious candidate for, which is, you know, again, it's one of those things about moving markets that, you know, I had a good, solid, probably mm, six or seven years of agency experience under my belt. I'd been in-house for a, a year briefly, but I I was a, sort of a mishmash of policy, yeah. public affairs, corporate comms person. I was not a brand PR That's person. Yeah. So I, I think it's you know, it was a privilege uh, to do that job. And, and I learned a lot being a client. Uh, but it also, it was part of the sort of lateral traverse of my career that I, you know, I've always done steps that? that were, you know, I didn't go, 
uh, I didn't take the step up into a corporate comms role. I took a step sideways to do a brand PR role, which was a new and different thing for me. And I think when I reflect now on what makes me happy in, in my job or what's important to me, that sort of sense that I'm learning new skills is really important. And I think probably that's why I've had this sort of slightly less... Um, obvious few careers are linear but yeah yeah, yeah. but I, I you know I, I just got me thinking that because definitely in in the UK well definitely in London anyway um, recruitment everyone well recruitment in public relations is a globally is a is a is a pain right I mean broadly you've got PRNGs tend to grow you've got a churn rate about 20% so therefore you've got to find yeah let's say 30% new staff every year you know ballpark yeah. Um, but on top of that, in London anyway, recruitment has become basically a process of risk management, hasn't it? Yeah. So if you can't tick, I don't know, eight of the ten boxes, yeah. you won't even got an interview yet, let alone get the job. I don't, you know, I don't know. And, and obviously it's, it's a very conservative Yeah, it's, recruitment it's square process. peg, square hole yeah. stuff. But it's interesting what you said just got me thinking about that Australian market, mm. when frankly you wouldn't, you, I mean, I don't want to be rude, but you you may not have got an interview in London yeah. or, or in the UK. Say. Yeah, for the, for the brand PR job yeah. at Coca-Cola, definitely it's not, not. not going to happen. Yeah. So I, I don't know why that is. Is it just supply and demand? Was there not the candidate there? Did they think, I'd say this Brit's, you know, she's she's a, she's likely to have a I don't know, more educated PR career than yeah. the local talent? I don't know. I think it's... there are fewer people in Australia who have um, multi-market experience or the kind of campaign okay. experience that you can get in London. Right. Um, I think also Australians um, sort of in an endearingly self-deprecating way think that often sort of suffer from this bias that Brits are cleverer and, um, you know, I think smarter we possibly think and... the same back. You know I, mean? <laughs> I you think know, we Austra- like to. Australians in London, you think, oh, you know, so maybe maybe that's a... Um, yeah. Different nationalities well, have suffered that. My so. Australian boyfriend had the same in reverse when he came here, obviously. Right. So he, okay. he probably took a hit uh, having had quite a lot of experience but then had to take a more junior role in agency because he didn't have local right. market yeah. experience. Yeah, and yeah. I think... You know, it, again, it's it's about when you're an employer, it, you're talking about risk. You and you know, you, would you hire the candidate that you think is talented and great, but doesn't know any of the local journalists, or do you hire one um, who has already been selling in stories over the last three years to the yeah. same FMCG journalist that you're that you know they're going to have to talk to as a consequence of working on the clients that that you're um, looking for so it's always hard that we uh, whenever a a sort of contact from abroad gets in touch says what would you reckon can can you help me get a job in London well it's going to be quite difficult I suspect send them in my direction well (laughs) (laughs) we're hiring right now (laughs) Um, we have a a PM in India so it tends to be um, guys from India but um, anyway Um, now I, I I, if I'm honest, I'm no political guru myself. You know, I have an interest in politics. So I'm in, intrigued by the time you spent as a, a special advisor to mm. Vince Cable and, and Joe Swinson at the Department of Business, Innovation and Skills, which is a mouthful. such a beautifully named department. Let's just call it BIS, shall we? Well, it was um, biz, and now they've made it Bayes, which is even worse. Oh, my goodness. Because they've given them energy to look after, too. Which obviously fits really well. With, <laughs> with, anyway. Um, so... 
Does Spads get a bad press? I mean, the stereotypes are not good, are they? No. I mean, you're either Malcolm Tucker and exactly. a total bastard. Or, Which, who I love. I yeah. love the idea that those people exist. Or you're wet and incompetent Ollie. Yes. Um, uh, I so mean, what's the reality then? The reality is that it slightly depends on who you work <laughs> for. Um, uh, I mean, the upside is that you get to say the F word a lot right. um, and that people think that's okay, uh, professionally speaking, which having worked for three years in Australia also, um, uh, I have a habit of doing, which right. I'm trying to quit. Don't do it now. Don't do it now. Uh, I've, I've deliberately restrained myself. Um, so, so is... is you, I mean, the so, actual so job Vincent itself. So Joe, then, what was yeah, it like? Was you it, work uh, with some of the smartest civil servants on okay. s- and some of the most talented politicians and some of the least talented politicians yeah. on some of the most important <laughs> issues of the day. I thought you were going to bracket those two into... into um, that, but, yeah. uh, in co- I'm talking in coalition government here, Fine. so... Gotcha. Uh, yeah. um, you're going to put your Lib Dem cap on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've got my little partisan elbow <laughs> in there. Um, so... You either most of spads either focus on media or they focus on policy. Um, right. So and you don't get to do both. You, and, and then... No, the, but all the roles are a blend of both because you can't achieve policy. So politics is the art of the possible, right? Okay. It's not an ideological exercise. It's what can I get done based on who I can get to agree with me, which is which means that the most rock solid of policy ideas needs to be sellable. Which is, you know, look at the Tory manifesto from the last election, and they. Um, the the absolute hash that they made over the dementia tax policy yeah. was because it was an, it was a you know an okay idea in theory if you look at the mechanics of the fact that we need to fund long term care for the elderly but it just absolutely bombed and and that's why you can never consider policy in isolation you have to think about the politics and the presentation of those things which is really the role that that spads play because civil servants job is to produce thoughtful evidence-based policy making and then spads have to consider the politics of those issues and and the balance of the two is really important and i think where uh you know shows like the thick of it um get it uh, get it wrong for perfectly good comedy purposes is that actually um there's a mutual respect between spads and officials because they need you need both Right. You, you know, I I wouldn't do the job that they uh, that they do, and they couldn't do the job that we do, and they needed us, especially in coalition, often to go and fight battles with the treasury or go and fight battles with number ten in order to get stuff. Um, and they were happy to have more political people in the room to do that battling because it's not appropriate for civil servants to be arguing sort of policy issues um, from a kind of ideological perspective. I mean, looking back at your career, was that that must have been a pretty enjoyable time. I mean, it's it's the best job I've ever had. I mean, obviously, apart from my current one. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's different, isn't it? I mean, yeah. to, you know, you're at the heart, you're at the heart of government. I might be overdoing it, but yeah, no. Yes. And the um, the it is it was an immense privilege, and I know that sounds really pretentious, but it really was. And it's you're working incredibly long hours. You're reading massive volumes of um, material. You're trying incrementally to make the world a better place, and. Um, so all of that fight and that argument and that pressure and that stress feels worth it. One, you know, one of the small things that we were able to do whilst I was there. I mean, I came in at the end of the coalition, imagining that I wouldn't get to do much other than you know, sort of media work. But actually, there came a moment where Joe Swinson, um, who was the Equalities Minister as well as the Business Minister, 
managed to secure support for gender pay gap regulations. And that means that now companies with more than 250 employees have to declare their gender pay gap. And we made that happen slightly by accident because we were trying to embarrass the Tories around International Women's Day. But um, (laughs) they realised they were on the wrong side of history. Cameron did the calculation and they brought in the regulations, which were part of what the Labour government had been trying to do before. So they were already in the Equalities Act from 2010. But now, afterwards, I can look back and say, well, I was there when that happened. And we, you know, we were instrumental in bringing that change forward. And it's really interesting now working with corporate clients, because they're having to deal with the repercussions of that, which is um, (laughs) fascinating. And slightly, I get this sort of two hatted thing where I'm talking to my corporate clients about how they're going to put their gender pay gap narrative together. And inside, I'm cheering because the conversations that they're having are exactly the conversations we hoped that the regulations would would prompt. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. But that that, that must help you in terms of where you're positioning your current business, which we'll come on to in a minute. Yeah. That time must have, it gives you such a useful insight, doesn't it? Yeah. It's fascinating. You know, you've. And also, I think you le- I learned something personally. So, I, you know, moving to Australia and starting from scratch gave me a kind of confidence about beginning afresh. Okay. And being a special advisor in government also taught me to have to back my own judgment and also to focus on what really mattered. You, I, because you were dealing with such volumes of information and you had to make decisions all the time and then didn't have time to say, oh, did I get, was that, you know, yeah. like to agonise, decide to move on. Move on right. and Or look at a piece of paper and say, do you know what, I don't have enough information here to make this judgment call, I need this. Okay. And I, it makes me think of that um, uh, totally different sector, but you know the... Um, triage uh, exercise that they did that they developed for ER so they used to screen you for a whole range of things if you were a heart attack risk when you got to hospital and they would take all sorts of tests and doctors would commission loads and loads of different tests and eventually they did this um, epidemiological study where they looked at exactly what factors you did need to and they worked out that really it's only three things that you need to look at and they and they then implemented that and they massively changed the, um, the heart attack risk rates in this is a, I think it was at Chicago Hospital. Right. Um, and actually, that's I think that's what being a spadger, you're know, looking at all this volume of information, you think, is is what I need to know here or not? No, it is. No, uh, no, it's not. So I need this. Or yes, it is. Go. I'm assuming a lot of confidence because you're you're in a room with a whole bunch of people who also think they're right. Um, <laughs> and you, you've got you've to be quite... He won't appreciate it, but I will tell you a story now that um, Sean Kemp, uh, who worked in Number 10, and um, he, I asked him for advice when I went in for the job. And um, I said, what do you think? He said, people will remember if you don't give an, give an opinion, you know, but they, they won't necessarily remember if you were wrong. So you're going to be wrong half the time, but you may as well back <laughs> yourself uh, because they will remember if you don't give a give a, a decent no. view. And I think most of the people that you work with, and again, this is why it was such an amazing job to have, you're working with these incredibly clever people and they will represent their views and they will, but they value the debate. And yeah. that's really important. And and that suits me down to the ground because I'm a professional contrarian. I love to argue, you know, black is white just for the hell of it because that's just who I am. Right. OK. Um, so you did that. Um, you had a cracking job and then presumably 
as the coalition we came lost the to election. an end, um, <laughs> your job came to an end, yes. which is, is kind of, it happens, right? Yeah. So the, 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 the risk you take. Well, and I, you know, I went in knowing that it was coming to an end. I don't think I was under any illusion that the Lib Dems were going to yeah. win the 2015 yeah. uh, general election. So I worked well, in although government. we did think there might be a coalition, didn't we? But, there was but, a lot but, of discussion. possibly yeah. not between the Tories and the Lib Dems, yeah. but... Okay. Yeah, there was a lot of discussion about what red lines might be, what future coalitions yeah. might look like. And, um, and then it was all a disaster for the Lib Dems, basically. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the lesson was there in what uh, in general elections from across the continent where yeah. minority partners in coalition get slammed every single time if you yeah. look at the sort of historic record. And so I think, yeah, the writing was on the wall and I, I took that job knowing that it wasn't a long-term job, which was why I got to, like, throw everything at it, which yeah, was okay. which was great. And I, I mean, I literally said to my boyfriend when I started in January, I said, I'll see you in May. <laughs> <laughs> and bless him, he cooked a dinner every night for yeah. four months. <laughs> but the, um, it, it's quite a, I, I wonder whether there's a trend of people doing that type of work for not, for not particularly long, because you just get burnt out. I, don't know. I definitely think there is. Um, I mean, but, you know, people mostly did it for a two Three, four. I think after five years, you do start to get burnt out. But if your minister gets reshuffled or, yeah. you know, you move to a different department. Um, I was talking to a friend who's uh, still a special advisor in the current government, because contrary to popular belief, we do talk across party lines. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's a it's an amazing job to do, but it does take its toll, definitely. Fine. Um, and then you started to set up Atlas. Yes. Um was was that frankly because there was a need to because you or, or, or had you always had an urge to to, to to start your own thing? Yeah, I I had always thought about starting my own business, and I didn't think that was particularly unusual, but maybe it is. Um, my mum ran her own business when we were kids from home, so right. I guess um, I'd always seen uh, a woman running a business and didn't. And, and running her own business and enjoying it. And and then my first agency boss uh, and I got on very well and he used me, I think, really as a sounding board for a lot of his business decisions, which meant I was exposed to a lot of the running of the business um, from quite a young age and, and I learned a huge amount from him. Right. Uh, so I'd always had this idea about... Which where, agency was that? No, Quintus. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. And... Uh, which was a you know much more niche specialist public affairs agency, but so I'd always had this idea, and and seeing somebody do it very up close, and you think, well, would I do it like that? Is that and and you know, yeah. he was very he's a very different person uh, to me. Well, the, and, the job I, I my first job I, I learned I learned a reasonable amount from it. Yeah, but I learned I, I watched some not particularly bright people making some really silly mistakes. <laughs> and obviously when you're junior, no one, you, you, you might say something, but you, you, you might well not. But you, know, yeah. you, you tend to keep your mouth shut and learn from it and move on. Well, and I also but think you, it you wasn't necessarily, yeah, you, do, you definitely do. And, it, and I, not, not even necessarily mistakes, but also just, I mean, the classic thing in our business is expectation management and where you where you sit on the scale, right? So yeah. some agency bosses go in, do the razzle dazzle, and and sell this huge big idea, and I would be the you know account director or associate director sitting there going, oh my god, I've got to deliver this. Yeah. Like or, I've got to or, make or this. I can't deliver this. this yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've got to make this a reality. Whereas my um, sort of. So I learned from that 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 wasn't how I wanted to do business. The way we do business is we sort of like to under promise and then over deliver, which, yeah. you know, should 
in my view, then creates a bit of a virtuous circle because if you if you have happy clients, they stay with you um, and they pay on time and they refer <laughs> other people to you and all yeah. of those things are really important. And actually also it means that you don't bake in a level of over-surface because you've massively hyped somebody's expectations, which means your team then kill themselves yeah. to deliver on something that's was possibly never realistic. I can tell this is this, this business plan has been written through bitter experience. <laughs> <laughs> but I, and and you know ultimately why did I start my own business because I wanted to I wanted to create the kind of place of work that I wanted to go to every day and and Charlie my business partner feels similarly about that you know we could have gone to work in any number of brilliant agencies around uh, London but we wanted to create a place that that made us happy and and had a bunch of happy individuals in it and that sounds on one level that's sort of um you know a bit sort of cheesy and and schmaltzy but actually I fundamentally believe that if you've got happy staff they will do brilliant work which keeps the clients happy and then that becomes that means you don't have to replace the team all the time you don't have to find new business all the time you're not chasing your tail endlessly which I have definitely seen in other agencies and that um, you know it becomes it becomes fun, and uh, you know I love talking to journalists. I love going to meetings with the MPs. I don't ever want to be um, sort of so far removed away from the coalface that I'm managing a spreadsheet and and yeah. not talking to my team and not talking to my clients and not talking to journalists all the time. So, sure. but it's, I mean, it's going well, right? I mean, six hundred k after only three years. It's yeah, you know it's, that's yeah. I'm not, Pretending it's the, the biggest agency in town, but it's um, but there's a danger we always think of these things as, as monopoly money. But you know, six hundred k, that's a lot of lot of yeah, business to win. It's a lot of hard graft. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's far exceeded every expectation okay. I had for it. Um, both <laughs> on a kind of commercial level, but also on a personal level, right. it was so the right thing to do. And well, why is it like, exceeded your expectations then? Did, uh, be, because I well, you, you know, my a very confident lady, and I'm I'm intrigued well, that you. <laughs> That's 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 a hard, uh, hard earned uh, um, uh, kind Realism of exter- no yeah. external you know presentation skill okay. rather than and that and I think that's the thing about running your own business and um, is yeah. that it you have is self doubt you have to have well, but you have to have the confidence to say buy me and it yes. and the, and it took me probably ten years to develop that confidence. Okay. And that the moving to Australia and the job in government, both of those things were really important foundational steps right. on the way to getting there. So on, on the one hand, if you hadn't gone to Australia in the short term, you might have more, you might have earned more money. Yeah. But in the long term, it wouldn't you wouldn't have been as well equipped to make a success of your business. Yeah, maybe. Okay. I mean, that's post hoc rationalising, but yeah, sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> you could have just said yes and gone with it. Um, so just tell me, because it's it, it's a. It's a model I see a bit of these days as the sort of the merging of, of corporate and public affairs. Yeah. Uh, you know, are they two separate disciplines anymore? I'm not sure they are. Yeah. But, but that's, you're kind of positioning it at that, that, that epicenter, that intersection. Exactly. Right? I mean, it is, the, it is the overlap between media and politics. I mean, so many of our clients' um, reputations are affected by the underlying politics of either their marketplace or the products that they offer um, and equally quite a lot of political campaigns don't even get off the ground if they don't have media support and social media um, engagement so I think has that changed I mean obviously the social media bit has changed but is that media media has been an important part of public affairs work for a while isn't it or are you saying that that's it's more so now than it has been before much more so now than it was before I mean when I first started working on public affairs campaigns in like 
2004, Twitter wasn't a thing, Facebook wasn't a thing. Oh, the social and, bill is obviously the social media yeah. is definitely new. But, but the, and the yeah. nuance of so we worked on the gambling bill, which was a huge piece of legislation that the government, um, that the Labour government brought in, and there was a massive um, Daily Mail campaign against one element of the bill. And that was really significant, but I think it's huge. It, the impact now is much is much bigger, and 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 that there's so much so, more. What does that mean in 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 reality? So you've got you're saying that the there is a virtuous loop in publicity and therefore pressure on the, whichever stakeholder you're trying to get to between online digital media, broadcast, print, and social media. Is yeah. it as simple as that? There yeah. Is, yeah, I mean politicians judge used to judge the weight of an issue by the weight of their mailbag and right. and i think and they've always had regard to what was in the pages of the nationals but i think more and more so now and as the media cycle has sped up and the 24-hour news um is affected so much more by the way that stories break on twitter um that that those aspects affect political thinking. I mean, I have been in the room when the Secretary of State was brought his media cuts every day. I know how much, how important uh, media coverage is to um, those senior level politicians, which means it seems to me just a missed opportunity not to use sophisticated media relations as part of your political campaigning. And and also, I think the social media stuff is is just essential. How... how, um technical are they in their analyst, analytics of it? I mean, are they getting reports, the MPs I'm talking about now, or, or are they just, you know, on Twitter and looking at the news? Or are they or are they using some sort of more deep dive, no, I mean, sophisticated software I, I, to understand I what's going this, on? Uh, my team will laugh when they hear me say this, but I, I have this sort of general rule that number one rule is to be human and that it's so easy to assume that politicians are not human. Right. And people do it all the time and they don't think... So, uh, so no, they well, we don't have sophisticated we... social media listening tools and they don't have sophisticated media monitoring. I mean, even the Secretary sure of State right. has brought his right. clips as a paper Goodness me. cutting. Right. Uh, you know, it's crazy, isn't it, really? That mm. they, right. So actually, they, they consume the news in a much more consumery fashion than right. you might but you're right assume. with it being personal. We, we saw in the US last week, didn't we, with, with, with that elevator pitch, which, you know, was just absolutely, yeah. um, you know, difficult to watch. But, the less but we talk clearly, about US politics, the well, better, because that's a whole other podcast. But, but I just, well, indeed. <laughs> but, you know, that bit on that, because that, that, that I mean, it's in the end, it hasn't made any difference. But for, for a little while, it looked like it might. Yeah. But, well, um, what's, what's interesting is what happens next in yeah, the US. So. Uh, the backlash against that is going to be really fascinating. I mean, I've, I've also... Mm, because, again, you know, you asked me if I'm a political animal and this reveals the truth, is that I've worked on two US election campaigns oh, as right. a volunteer. You definitely are, then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no one else takes holiday to go and work on campaigns <laughs> abroad. Presumed on the Democrat side, I'm, I'm imagining. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I think most of mainstream Brit- British political thought would find itself at home in the Democrat Party, the, yeah. particularly the current... Uh, uh, inc- exactly. in, Maybe yeah. 10 years ago, a bit different, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Vanessa, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the PR Moment podcast, produced in association with the Marketeers Network. If you'd enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and give us a decent rating.